This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Yes, so the theme of this weekend um, is beyond isolation building the Buddha land, I think. I haven't looked at the uh, poster recently, but I think that's it, isn't it? And I don't know how many of you came because of the theme or just because it was a Padmaloka, uh, what we call men's event. We're going to change the name of them next year to Great Gatherings. Um, This name, men's event, I should just say, was... uh, something that Sankarachita coined way, way back in the very early days of Padmaloka. He wanted a sort of um, something like a weekend here that wasn't just a retreat. It was, a, I think he had in mind like a, almost like the word happening, you know, that you used to get in the 60s or beings or something like that. But there's a kind of coming together of, of people. And you have a number of different things going on. But the main thing is that we gather that the Sangha uh, gathers. And we thought we had really big weekends when we had when we filled up the retreat centre lounge, where the tea counter is, that was a shrine. That's where we had the shrine and we had the talks in that space and we filled out around the corner and we thought the place was absolutely packed. I think there must have been about 20, 30 people there, something like that, maybe not that many. And there's the sort of famous occasion on these big weekends where we couldn't... Um, uh, I wasn't living here, then I say we, because it was, you know, we regarded Padmaloka as our place, but weekends where people couldn't get a bed, but we offered they could, that they could sleep on bubble wrap with their sleeping bags. People are a lot younger in those days, and <laughs> they put up with everything. But the whole idea was a coming together of, of for, for, for men, for the men's sangha on all levels, you know, people who are sort of reasonably new to things, people who are mitras, uh, order members of, of, of different ages. And Sangha actually was quite involved in these events, often chairing the talks, sometimes leading the pujas, sometimes leading the meditations. Uh, so it's a, a long, long tradition, for 40 years of uh, nearly of, of these sorts of weekends. And, you know, we've, we've, we've kept them going. And they're run as a sort of combination between the, the men's mitra conveners, the people who are responsible for the sort of men, the training of men in local centres, and uh, the Padmaloka uh, team here, particularly the, the, the support team. One thing that Pramunita didn't mention, uh, I do have a particular title um, uh, among, among or responsibility, and one of them is the, the overall men's Mitra convener for the UK and Ireland. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, and that basically means I keep an eye on your on on the Mitra conveners here. So if you have any difficulties with your Mitra convener, you contact me, and uh, <laughs> I'll sort them out for you. <laughs> I think they're generally a good lot. Because uh, immediately following this weekend, we have a Mitra conveners meeting where we discuss all sorts of issues to do with, you know, what's going on for men at centres. And one of the things that we often talk about is what themes are we going to have for these. Weekends, and I remember, I seem to remember, um, the theme of this thing of beyond isolation building the Buddha field. And it came out, I think, of a particular concern. Um, it, it, it does seem that, um, 
you know, people who get into Buddhism um, at first can, can, can regard it as something in a way very self-regarding, in a way very introverted. The image of Buddhism, if you like, is of course the meditating uh, Buddha, the whole idea of going off to the forest and being very much alone and meditation being the main thing and being very concerned uh, with your mental states and even gaining a sort of enlightenment or an insight or something like that, but very much sort of on your own. And Sangha, if that's there, then that's something that just supports that activity. And of course, that's a distortion, really, of the Dharma. I can understand why it's why people think it for all sorts of reasons to do with um, what's emphasised in, in, in many Buddhist traditions and partly to do with um, the sort of problems that we have in the modern world. Um, you know, it's an increasingly sort of nucleated world. Weird when you think of all the joined up stuff to do with you know, uh, uh, online things and things like that. But you notice that there is a sort of loss of, in a way, civic life and, you know, people coming together in all sorts of ways. I'm generalising, I know that's not the whole uh, story, but um, it is something to sort of watch out for and it's something to watch out for with our Buddhist practice, that we don't distort or get one-sided in our practice because of excessive, in a sense, personal preoccupation. yes. We need, to, we need to take responsibility for our life. We do need to work on our minds in meditation. But that is one side of, of Buddhist practice. Um, it's a very important side. It's in a sense, it's a central side of things. Because after all, if we look into things, we are deeply alone. We're, we're quite strange, us human beings, because... Uh, we're profoundly alone. We're, as, as the, the Buddhist uh, tradition, one of the great Buddhist teachers says, we are born alone and we die alone. Uh, <coughs> only we experience that. There might be other people around, but that particular journey, you know, from a previous life, come emerging from the mother's womb into the world, is it, we're very, very much on our own in that moment. Uh, we only have to see the sort of terror of a, baby coming into life, to know that they feel terribly alone and, and threatened. And of course, when we die, even if we are surrounded by our loved ones, we go into that journey, into what some Buddhist traditions call the intermediate state between birth and rebirth, very, very much alone. And you can sort of see this with people who are facing death. They, feel, they really feel alone with it in spite of all the love and care that they have, they are on that journey on their own. Uh, the, the, the image for us in the samsara, traditional image, is that we're travellers. We're perpetually travelling. And this life is but a, 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 a journey through a trading town. Um, Shantideva uses this image in his Bodhicharabhatara. You who wander abroad through the trading towns of destiny. He uses that image. And uh, we, 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 we're, we're with people for a short time only, and then we move on to another life. That's one side of it. The other side of it, of course, is that as human beings, we are profoundly social creatures. Uh, we want to communicate. We want to be 
in connection. We want to feel solidarity with others around us. So there's this strange mixture of profound aloneness and yet profound connection. And both sides need to be addressed and need to be brought along in our Buddhist practice. And of course, this is exemplified in the Buddha himself. In the Buddha himself. You know the probably the Buddha's life story that uh, before his enlightenment he realised, he woke up to the fact that life at home, as he put it, is uh, cramped and limiting. It's crowded, it's dusty, it's dusty with the dust of habit, with the dust of habitual relationship. And you can imagine how claustrophobic, particularly the extended family in India can be. Everybody knows your uh, business, everybody knows how you should be living, and you can feel that you're on these tram tracks which uh, where you have to fulfil the duties of not just your family but your caste and your community and your nation and all that kind of thing. And the Buddha really felt that. And we can feel that in our own, you know, perhaps uh, I certainly felt that when I was growing up within my own family, lovely though my mum and dad, uh, you know, were and sisters and all the rest of it. This sense of there's just these tram tracks that I'm locked on. Um, well, certainly the Buddha felt that, felt that dukkha, that limitation. And uh, the only alternative for him was to go forth. In one of the texts it says, Though my parents wept and wailed, when I was a young man with coal black hair, I cut off my beautiful locks, donned the rag yellow robe and walked off into homelessness completely leaving not just his family but his caste, his group, his destiny in a sense, his country walking across the river into completely foreign lands just to work out what this life really is. And he knew he had to do that on his own. He knew he had to take full responsibility you know, for his life. And uh, that going forth, that renunciation... Um, is, I think, something that is uh, almost one of the sort of repressed shadow areas of contemporary Buddhists. I've come to that conclusion. Uh, A lot of people don't like to look into it, partly because they have family responsibilities that obviously they need to fulfil and, uh, you know, they they want to fulfil and they need to practise within that context. But nonetheless, the founder of our tradition, the Buddha himself, lived that lone, going forth, renunciate life. And we have to meditate on that. We have to reflect on that to see what that means for us if we're to have a viable Buddhist life. And of course, we find that continual renunciation going on all the time in his search. He came to the end of all the different uh, traditions that were available to him. And uh, there's a wonderful poem by, by Sangharachita, a short poem, but describes how in the end, before his enlightenment, the Buddha entered into a deep loneliness, a deep aloneness, really experiencing the fact that he'd exhausted all the possibilities available to him, all of the di- different traditions available to him. I find that unimaginable. I can't imagine reaching that sort of point in my, in my uh, 
in my life where you just completely run out of anything available, anything external that could provide you with the answers. And we know that he found in deep meditation uh, the, the way to and the fullness of enlightenment, an unprecedented enlightenment, a completely new uh, truth, a new realisation uh, of things that wasn't actually available anywhere else in India at that time. So he found that alone in the jungle, in the forest, beneath uh, the Bodhi tree, seeing into the depths of, in, of, of, of existence and discovering full and total liberation from all of the sort of cyclic, limiting uh, ways that uh, were around at his time and uh, the liberation from his own cyclic patterns. And of course, what went with that liberation, he says, is great <coughs> bliss, overwhelming satisfaction. Nibbanam paramang sukhang, says the, says the Buddha. Nirvana is the supreme bliss. It's a bliss beyond anything that we can imagine, because it's a bliss that doesn't uh, happen within the framework of subject and object, self, and other, any of that construction. It's a completely open-ended satisfaction and, and happiness. So, you know, if you're after ecstasy, if that's the sort of thing that you're drawn to, go for nirvana, because that isn't going to uh, let you down. I think that's very important to remember when you hear worthy exp explanations of the Buddhist path. Don't forget that it's about this deep satisfaction, even deep pleasure, the pleasure in the end of nirvana. Uh, the pleasure of uh, of liberation, the great overwhelming bliss, very important. I, I love dwelling on that because, uh, well, I definitely want I definitely want bliss all the time, if possible, um, and other things. But anyway, so there's there's that deep aloneness in the Buddha's experience. But then, of course, and and I think because of the transcendent nature of his experience, its utter purity, its complete uh, aloofness, in a sense, from everything around him, there's that strange experience that uh, the Buddha describes of um, feeling reluctant to communicate it, reluctant to teach it, to make it known. Uh, to others. I mean, it's definitely before his enlightenment you find the Buddha reflecting that, that, that it's not just about his own particular dukkha, he's very concerned actually about the dukkha of life. The dukkha of life, even in some of the, the oldest portions of the Pali texts, he reflects on that, that dukkha is all pervading. It's not personal. Alas, this world has fallen on trouble and from this trouble it knows no escape. When indeed will an escape be known? So we know that that motivation was there. It wasn't just a personal exploration. We know that we're, we're dealing with a very sensitive, sensitised man who's concerned about the welfare of life. But nonetheless, <laughs> after his attainment of, uh, of, of vision and insight and wisdom, he feels reluctant because it will be really wearying to make it known and to have that rejected. It's as if there is, in a sense, nothing to keep the Buddha in life. And I think we really have to imagine this, imagine that quality of, 
liberation, of refinement, of uh, of depth, of um, this is in a sense nothing for him. There's no gravitational pull to use that image that Sangharachita uses. But then there's a kind of tremor in the cosmos, so to speak. The mythical stories tell us that uh, the great god Brahma, who isn't a creator god or anything like that, he's a, a being on a higher level of consciousness who has particular concern for the welfare of, of life, entreats him. He arises and he entreats. Some people wonder, is this a movement in the Buddha's own consciousness or is it a movement in the cosmos and asks him, begs him to look again the world will perish without your teaching beings will perish, spiritually perish without your teaching and of course he does look again and uh, the text tells us that he sees, he has a vision he looks with his Buddha eye his eye of supreme enlightenment he has this vision which in a sense, he can't really articulate in ideas. He sees living beings as, as, as beauty, as a great lake of beauty, a great lake of lotus flowers. That's the image he uses, a great lake of, of purity, in a sense. Uh, well, a lotus lake actually is a great lake of mud, uh, of impurity. But he sees, the important thing of his vision is that he sees us, us living beings as white and as red and as blue, lotuses pushing up, some with buds tightly closed, some with buds opening to the light. He sees that there are those with little dust uh, who will see, who will see what he's seen. It's as if his full enlightenment, his full wisdom and compassion the fullness of his awareness in metta, is seeing that potentiality in us. His full unfoldment as the thousand-petal lotus of enlightenment is seeing and resonating with the potential, that movement in us, in, in all life. And that is then results in the Buddha's compassion. I think it's very important when we reflect on the Buddha's compassion that it's a, it's a joyous thing, in a way, it's not a feeling of pity. It's not a feeling of mournfulness at the suffering of the world. It's actually a vision of potential and the tremendous energetic, uh, loving response to draw that forth. You know, that's what the Buddha's compassion really is. One of the words for compassion in, uh, in Pali and Sanskrit is anukampa, anukampa, which means to tremble with to shake with. So the Buddha's compassion is the fullness of his enlightenment, shaking with, resonating with, vibrating with the potential uh, in us. So as soon as he sees this, as soon as he has this vision of of potential, of uh, the potential for Buddhahood in all life, he decides to leave his aloneness immediately. Immediately he decides to leave his retreat and to go and find people who will listen. And the first people that he thinks of, who are actually alive, are his old friends, the five ascetics who'd uh, left him and abused him because he decided to take some solid food when he gave up the extreme asceticism. And it's very interesting to see, to see the way the Buddha reflects on uh, 
on, 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 on their potential. His reflection is very interesting. He doesn't think, oh, well, they were all very, they were really stupid and they rejected me and all the rest of it. But nonetheless, I might as well go and see them and see if we can do something with them. Not at all. The reflection is gratitude. A Buddha can experience, can feel gratitude. He reflects, these five were very helpful to me. They were very helpful in my practice. They were a a little spiritual community. Uh, They were his companions. They were very helpful to me. So I'll go and talk to them. I'll go and communicate with them. And you probably know the story if you've... um, read the life of the Buddha or you've been on a, a Dharma day that, uh, you know, he goes to Sarnath to the deer park and through this <coughs> tremendous efforts of communication and their responsiveness, he breaks through and the Dharma is communicated. It's received by initially Anyata, Anyata Kundanya and the Buddha's response when Anyata sees and what he sees is impermanence, that which arises passes away, the Buddha's response is to break forth into an ecstatic udana, uh, an inspired saying, an ecstatic saying. It was just, Kondanya knows. Kondanya knows. The Buddha wasn't sort of, you mustn't think of the Buddha as sort of a really cool kind of character, and it doesn't really matter if somebody doesn't uh, get it or not. No, he really is delighted that another man sees Another man sees enlightenment as he sees it. Another man is liberated as he is liberated. Uh, so there's joy. It means that the Dharma, if one man can get it, every man, every woman, everybody can get this teaching, can have liberation. So yes, although the Buddha <coughs> discovered that enlightenment on his own, he took full responsibility for his life, The rest of his life was spent communicating. And it's very important, you know, we have lots of images of the sitting Buddha, we have lots of them in this uh, shrine room in one way or another, that's appropriate for a meditation room. But you know, in India, there are equally as many images, if not more, traditionally, of the Buddha walking, and the Buddha standing, and the Buddha communicating, uh, the Buddha walking the dust roads of India, uh, communicating and expressing his Dharma. He spent most of his life, apart from the rainy season, wandering until he was an old man of 80, 40 years, maybe more, on the road, making the Dharma known and encouraging his disciples to make the Dharma known to his first uh, 60 Arahant disciples. He says, go forth, go forth for the welfare and the benefit of the many folk, of the of the Bahujan, of the people. It's a very loaded word in India because it's a kind of anti-caste term. Don't be partial. Go out to the people, the Bahujan, and teach them the Dharma for their happiness and their welfare. Let not two of you go on the same path. Just get out there and teach. So there's this tremendous emphasis on communication as well in the Buddhist tradition. Sometimes people say, you hear Buddhists, even unfortunately some people in our order, that, oh well, you know, first of all you should gain enlightenment and then you teach and then you communicate. You kind of concentrate on doing it all on your own 
and then you get together with people. This is not what the Buddha actually taught. The Buddha encouraged even his unenlightened disciples to communicate and to get together with people. He was concerned with what later Buddhist tradition, the Mahayana tradition talk calls building the Buddha land, creating a world which is totally conducive for the development of the individual, which is totally conducive to the living of the Dharma life. Well, which is totally conducive for a good human life, because these two things aren't separate, a good human life and living a Dharma life. They, they overlap. The Buddha was totally concerned with that. And as you probably know, he did create a sort of Dharma revolution, a peaceful revolution in India, being very anti-caste, uh, anti-untouchability, and very concerned with the human, with human connectedness. And one of the big themes of, of the Buddha, particularly in his teachings to his disciples, his bhikkhu disciples, his lay disciples, one of his big themes is to do with harmony, unity, concord, coming together. There are many, many teachings in the Buddhist texts. You're probably, you know, you might think that, that the emphasis in the Pali Canon is the Buddha talking about meditation, talking about wisdom, talking about those things, talking about ethics. But when you look through the Pali text, you can see there is equal emphasis on community, on the creation of community, the creation, yes, as later Buddhist tradition calls it, on creating the Buddha field. So it's very important that we have this going on in our Dharma life as well. Very deep, personal, individual responsibility for our mental states, for our spiritual practice, as the Buddha says, the um, um, uh, you, uh, what, what's it saying? Uh, by you must the zealous effort be made. The Buddhas only point the way. That's true. We all individually need to make effort on our practice. You know, when we meditate, we're deeply alone with ourselves, even though we're with other people. We have to take responsibility for our mental states. And we need particularly to, to remove blame and resentment and, uh, and those things from our minds if we're to get to grips with ourselves. But equally, part of that uh, aloneness, taking responsibility, is to create community, to create spiritual community, to create uh, sangha. And uh, one, of, one of what I want to explore is um, ways we might do that using uh, traditional teachings, ways we might approach that. And it might even be something that, that, that these things are of value to you in, in other walks of life. I'm not just thinking now, of, I'm going to be using the Buddha's teaching on this, particularly to his bhikkhu disciples, his monk disciples. But they might be things of relevance that you can bring to your centres, your different groups you might be in, mitra study groups, men's groups, uh, whatever it might be, class, teams, but also it might be of relevance to those of you in your workplace, uh, any kind of uh, work you're doing in other areas, maybe social work that you're doing. I don't know, I don't know uh, you all here and your backgrounds, but I hope that these particular teachings will be of value to creating community, wherever, whatever community that you're in, because we need to bring people together. 
We need to bring people together around something positive and meaningful. It's a very fractious world in so many ways. Uh, and there's so many threats to, I think, to the creation of uh, concord and harmony between human beings, between you know the creation of human solidarity. There's so many threats these days, I think, on uh, civil society and so many wars going on throughout the world. And it's tremendously important, I think, that Buddhists take responsibility for that, play their part in strengthening links between uh, human beings, strengthening our links you know, between one another. I remember when I was, uh, uh, not long after I was ordained, there was an order convention uh, that Sangharachita uh, led and gave talks on and led all the meditations on. And one of the talks he gave was called A Vision of History. A Vision of History. And his vision of history was of a battle, a war indeed, between the spiritual community and the group. The spiritual community, by the spiritual community, he meant individuals coming together to develop and evolve along a spiritual path. And the, by the group, he meant the forces of, that are antagonistic to that, people who would want to destroy such communities, who are antagonistic to the development of individuals in harmony. And his vision of history was really interesting because he did talk about Buddhist spiritual communities. He, he mentioned these wonderful visions you have of the Buddha sitting with 1,250 monks in complete silence all night in complete harmony uh, without any kind of disturbance in the force. Uh, sorry to use that language, but you know what I mean. No disturbance at all, like a great lake of, of harmony. He gave examples of that. But he also talked about other attempts to live as spiritual communities. He had a lot to say about Manichaeism. Manichaeism. Manichaeism is, was, a, was a sort of central Asian uh, tradition, a kind of dualist tradition, vegetarian, non-violent. The Persian founder Mani was uh, an artist, uh, but it was more or less wiped out as a spiritual community by a combination of uh, Islam and Zoroastrianism. And he talked, he, but he saw it as an attempt by individuals following a sort of evolutionary path to come together. He wasn't saying that they were enlightened or anything like that. And he was saying to us, this is your inheritance as an order. You're part of a tradition. You're part of a legacy. You're part of a, a whole tradition of individuals coming together to practice a path of self-transcendence in harmony. And you're up against forces that will not play by your rules. But he also talked about there are enemies outside, but of course there are enemies inside the spiritual community. There are enemies inside us, indeed. Forces in us that don't want to be in harmony, deeply, profoundly in harmony with one another. And you even see in the Buddha's own spiritual community this going on. The, the old Pali texts are wonderful because they're really honest. Uh, they're wonderfully honest. You know, you, we can have this sort of view that Buddhists of the past, they were absolutely wonderful. They were all enlightened. If only we could go back to the time of the Buddha and be around the Master, surely we would all sail up in perfect harmony to a wonderful nirvana. Not so. 
absolutely not so. There was a particular uh, group of monks in a town called Kasumbi who had a massive falling out. Absolutely massive falling out. The argument was over the placement of a water pot in a latrine. <laughs> that was what the argument, and was it a fault or wasn't it a fault? And the t- it, was, it was an argument between two leaders within this particular community of thousands of, of, of monks. I mean, it always is a falling out over something like that, isn't it? Who's cleaned the toilets? Who hasn't cleaned the toilets, more to the point? Who hasn't done the washing up? Why didn't... I can remember a... Um, uh, being on a four-month, a three-month ordination course, and we used to have these uh, sort of house meetings every week, and they were almost punch-ups over why nobody had brought any cocoa, uh, who, and, and who had done the washing up. Throughout the week, there were no arguments at all, you know, as we were studying the Dharma with Sangharakshita, but get people talking about the details of how we ran things, suddenly the rampant egos were up and running. And I'm not just talking about the youngsters, I'm talking about some quite senior order members <laughs> really <laughs> ripping into each other. <clears throat> Very interesting. Um, so this particular community had a, a big falling out and it was so serious that uh, everybody was really bothered about it and the Buddha was asked to come and do something, asked to come and mediate um, the fir- and the texts say that they were abusing each other with verbal daggers, uh, and they were—I think there were even there was even sort of physical violence that had, that had come up. Obviously, long-standing elephants and under the carpet had been unleashed, and they were really having a go at each other. So it was really sort of heavy. And the Buddha went to them, and he said, first thing he said, "Stop! Just stop." Stop arguing. Stop wounding each other. So this is said to be one of the first things you should do in, in, in the Buddha's advice to, to, to when there is conflict. He, he uses the expression, you need to put down straw on the mud. There's a lot of mud that you've created between each other. You've trampled the mud between you. You can't walk on solid ground. Put down straw. Stop and confess. Acknowledge your fault. Doesn't matter who's right or wrong. You look at your mind. Doesn't matter who started it. You look at your mind, you look at your words, and you apologise. And it's not, and it has to be unilateral. It's not, well, I will if he will. Uh, No. Absolutely unilateral disarmament. That's what you do. So the Buddha said, stop. And, you know, obviously, you know, a rather, it sounds like a bit of one of those rather smarmy people came up to the Buddha and said, Lord, Bhagwan, Bhante, don't you trouble yourself. We'll sort it out. You know, a real sort of honey-toned, rather snaky kind of person. So I'm reading a lot into it, but it does sort of, be calm, Bhante, you know, don't. And the Buddha could see exactly what was going on. He said something very interesting. He said, these people do not even want to be in harmony. And he walks away. He goes off into the jungle, and in one of the stories of this particular city, he goes into the jungle and meets an elephant who had been uh, being really hassled by the young bull elephants. They were obviously, you know, trying it out on him, and the the, cu- the, the cow elephants were sort of, you know, 
giving them a lot of hard time as well. So the elephant goes off to the jungle and there's this fantastic communication between the Buddha and this great tusker. And the Buddha does one of his udanas and talks about tusker meets with tusker. Yeah, it's great meeting. Anyway, that's a detail. The Buddha, you know, just realised, well, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. Sometimes you can't bring people together, as we know. As we know only too well, there are too many vested interests. The real uh, giveaway, though, in this story about these particular monks was that the lay people, of course, who were supporting them with food and medicines and robes and all the rest of it, they were so disgusted with the, with the, with these monks. They said, right, we're not going to support you anymore. No food, no robes, no medicine. And immediately the bhikkhus made up. <laughs> what a giveaway. They immediately made, the Buddha couldn't do it, but when it came to their stomachs and their robes, they could get into harmony. Very, very, uh, interesting little story there. But, uh, after this particular <coughs> event, the Buddha gave a teaching. I think he was called back to the monks. I think they'd realised how far they'd gone. And he was asked to teach them on how to create harmony and respect and unity, you know, within the Sangha. It's a very active thing. You can't just sort of leave it to chance. Uh, We tend to think of harmony as being sort of, um, oh, we're all harmonious, everything's fine, but you have to keep at it. Sangharakshita says of our... uh, the precept that we take, us order members, of, of harmonious speech. It said, he said it's much better to think of it as harmonising speech. It's something dynamic. There are always deeper levels of harmony and unity and concord to achieve. You can't just rest on your laurels with that. Because, of course, our, 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 our minds, our actions, our being is always pulling back from deeper harmony. There was always that gravitational pull. While we're in the framework of subject and object, self and other, while we believe in a really existing self and other, there's always going to be room for disharmony. We're always going to be pulling back from that. So the practice of bringing about harmony and unity, far from being just an elementary Buddhist practice, it's an insight practice. It's a wisdom practice. It's the activity of people who are serious about dissolving the distinction uh, between self and other. So the teaching he gives are very simple. Very, very simple teachings. Although, before I get to those six, I just want to mention another teaching, which he gives much later, on the conditions for the long life of the Sangha. In a way, this, this first condition, this first practice, is the most basic. He says, so long as the bhikkhus so long as the Sangha come together repeatedly and in large numbers, you would expect the bhikkhus, you would expect the Sangha to prosper spiritually and not decline. And it's really interesting that the Buddha puts that first. If you want to have harmony, you've got to meet. You've got to come together. And I mean physically, be together. It's not enough to text, phone, make phone calls. It's not enough to Skype. You actually have to be in the same place. You have to experience the living presence of one another to create unity and harmony. So it's really important. Sometimes you get people, I I know people, you know, who, who, they are sincere and they are serious and say, I'm really with you, I'm really up for it. But then I don't see them year after year after year. 
and you know then they'll pop up and say I'm really with you and I'm really with you but it's like well yes but it's got to be more than that you've actually got to get together you've got to meet you've got to be together in order for it to in, in order to uh, for something to actually develop and to the to, to to as much in a sense or as little as you can so coming together is is the basis of it but with the teachings to the kasambi monks the first three things assuming that you're all together is metta loving kindness the buddha says you, you you if you want harmony you have to practice bodily deeds of loving kindness in private and public bodily deeds of loving kindness vocal deeds of loving kindness in public and private and mental deeds of loving kindness in private and public so let's let's just try and you know un- unpack you know this little uh, this little teaching loving kindness in 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 body now when we say loving kindness of course the question will come people well i don't always feel loving kindness so how can i do deeds and words of loving kindness if i if i don't feel it the thing is loving kindness is a practice loving kindness is a yoga you know when you do yoga you put yourself in those asanas and postures and you know, or if another discipline tai chi whatever discipline you do you put yourself in something and over time the the body and the mind actually change through putting yourself in that it's the same with metta it's a it's a yoga it's a, it, it's a practice and bodily deeds of loving kindness are fantastic because you you don't have to feel love uh, to do it it's very very simple there you are you're looking around at the people around you and you see that they have a need of one kind or another and you go and help them with it it's sort of dead simple really uh, at first loving kindness is simply that presence and awareness of one another you tune up you tune in you get that vivid awareness you take it off of your own stuff um, and you put it out there to see what the person needs i mean on this weekend i'm sure some of you have arrived thinking especially if it's the first time with all these you know sweaty blokes around you and you probably think god this is weird um uh, this is what a weird situation i've never been with so many men before it can feel intimidating you can feel a bit shy a bit nervous and all that sort of thing maybe the last time you were with a load of blokes it was really sort of threatening or something like that school days football crowds whatever um but there's a way of dealing with that uh, for everybody and those of you who are really confident and you know into it old patanoka hands it's different for you both of you need to kind of put the awareness out there look around look around you at the needs of the people around you where do you eat where do you how do you do the washing up after this um talk you're going to go to groups some of you won't know where to go you won't know where the garden room is you won't know where the the community library is but there are people here who do know so loving kindness indeed is on that kind of level in a way there's nothing very profound about it you're being helpful you're showing people where to go you're pointing the way you're you're looking out for people looking out for what they need you're taking the focus of yourself i'm giving an example in this situation 
you have to also transpose that, of course, to your own circumstances at home. I don't know what all of your circumstances are. A really brilliant place to practice, I find, is, um, is uh, beginner's classes. I haven't done beginner's classes for years. But when I used to do beginner's classes, they were a fantastic place to practice sort of deeds of loving-kindness, whether I felt in touch with love or not, whatever my feelings. Because you'd always have that person, those people, who would do the proverbial thing in the bookshop area, hiding behind their, their little cup, because they were so shy at being in this weird Buddhist place. They knew they had to come to learn meditation. But it's so weird and freaky. And uh, I remember one guy in particular, I'd always go and talk to him. And, you know, when you meet a shy person, you feel uncomfortable yourself, don't you? Because you're not sure whether do they want you to talk to them, do they want you to even be next to them, getting up too close, all that sort of thing. But I thought, no, go and talk to him. He's made the effort to come every week. Just go and say hello. And it would literally be, hello, how are you? How's things? What do you do? How's it, you know, how, how's your work going? How are your family, as we got to know? We could only manage, I think, five minutes max <laughs> because it would be too uncomfortable for both of us. But he was regular. I ended up ordaining him. He ended up becoming, he's now a fantastic uh, order member, brilliant order member. You'd never think that this guy would be the guy hiding behind the cup in the bookshop area. But I went over. I just t- made the effort to go and break through my own you know, resistance and, and, and talk to him. And that's the kind of thing I mean. Bodily acts of loving kindness. And he said to me, the fact that I talked to him every week changed his life. It was part of changing his life. Just somebody showing interest, just walking over and saying hello. It's just on that kind of level. Obviously, this can be developed in all sorts of ways. You notice as well that the Buddha talks about in public and private whether they're there or not. Sometimes you can have people doing wonderful things for other people and the person doesn't even know about it. You know, really wonderful things being done for them. Um, and they don't know. I'm, I'm very fortunate living here at Papaloka with this, you know, quite a high degree, I would say, of, of this, these bodily acts of loving kindness. We could always do better. But when I come back from being away... Um, there's a there's a, a community member who always uh, makes my bed up, uh, puts flowers on my shrine. Uh, actually, everybody in the community leaves cards for each other, gifts and all that sort of thing. But this person goes even further. Sometimes I've come back and he's cleaned my room, which I never clean. I mean, it's <laughs> terrible. He actually does. I mean, extraordinary. Never tells me, never asks me. I always know who it is, and of course I always go and, you know, thank him, you know, for, for, for that. But that's, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. Anyway, I'm sure in the groups you can follow up ways you can do these, these sort of sometimes these nameless acts of loving kindness. Putting out a hand on just a very ordinary level, uh, to people. And then of course there's vocal acts of loving kindness in private, in public. This is incredibly important because well, Buddhists seem to do loads of talking, don't they? Including me. Um, but also speech is so powerful. Uh, it, it's such a powerful force, uh, both both the, 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 the actual speaking and the written word. And these days, with so many more 
means of, of, of communicating through the written and spoken word. We've got to be extra vigilant. Um, I'm just about getting the hang of not sending emails uh, when I'm annoyed uh, with somebody, and I think I'm not annoyed. I'm just putting it in drafts and then opening drafts and deleting. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't get the hang of that when it first happened. And, you know, really creating terrible sort of messes with people because of thoughtless, you know, words in, 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 in an email, uh, uh, to my shame. Um, but no, so, so we need to be care, careful with our, with our speech. Um, I, especially somebody like myself, if you talk a lot like I do, you've got to be ultra careful. Um, because if you're a, if you're a, a, a big talker, um, you know, you can end up just talking rubbish. And when you talk rubbish, you can inadvertently hurt people. I've certainly done that. It's something we have to sort of watch in the community, especially when we're, we're starting to really let rip with one another. You know, we, we, we get playful sometimes and we can end up, oh gosh, sorry, I said the wrong thing, that kind of thing. Um, but if you're not somebody like that, and of course, if you are somebody like that, you've got to make sure that what you say is positive. If you're not a talker, you need to be bolder. You need to be bold. You need to have the courage to speak, to say, to communicate, and to communicate uh, positively. Uh, speech is very, very powerful. I think we, um, we, we, you know, in, in more ancient times, of course, speech is regarded as uh, as incantation, as magic. You know, uh, uh, somebody who can speak, who can communicate, has, has you know, they're, they're word masters. I think there's an old gypsy tradition, the Lavengro, the, the word master. Uh, in uh, in you know, Manjugosha is called um, Vagishvara, Lord of Speech. Speech is tremendously powerful, so we need to make it really, well, not just truthful, but really, really uplifting inspirational and one of the things we need to do with our, our speech especially is to rejoice and to rejoice in, rejoice in others to really look for their qualities and name their qualities look for them and name them you know this is this is so important so many people they've never been they've never heard from anybody else that they have qualities they've never heard that Nobody's ever told them, I, I really, you know, what you did there is just so fantastic. What a wonderful thing to do. Um, what a wonderful man you are and things like that. I mean, people get, I mean, you can see people going, when you actually genuinely say it and not a sort of pretend way of saying, you know, that sort of, you know, thing that can happen. Oh, I think you're wonderful. And it's not based on anything, not that cheesy thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a real seeing and a real naming and a real genuine appreciation. You can see people almost freaking out. It's such a positive shock. It's, it's a complete change of their self-view because their self-view has been so sort of limited and in a way negative. Their self-narrative is, is too negative. And for somebody to come along and rejoice in them and, and, and to name their qualities is, is just such a gift. I mean, I find rejoicing in merit really scary because when it's accurate, when it's on the money, when it's true, there's part of me thinking, oh, crikey, I really don't have any excuse, do I? 
um, than to really crack on with my Dharma life and make more effort. It's that uh, uh, challenging. But but you can delight people. You can move people with, you know, courteous speech, gentle speech, inspiring speech, rousing speech, loving speech, priyavadita, as it as it's called, really loving speech. We should we should have the courage of that. You know, very often when we talk about communication, there can be this sort of therapeutic approach that you've got to get your stuff out. You know, all your traumas and negativity and all the rest of it. Well, yeah, there might be stuff like that locked down in there. But Sangha actually makes the point there's far more positive material that's in us, that is hungry, dying, you know, to be seen, dying to come forth. Um, And it literally is dying. It doesn't die, it goes a bit warped. So to speak positively, to speak well to people and to name their qualities. So that's something you can do. You know, in your, whatever situation you're in, make sure you're rejoicing in, in, in one another. And then mind, mental acts of loving kindness. Notice that the Buddha talks about the mind as act. Speech as act, body as act, mind is an act. It's karma producing. It's having an effect. If you're dwelling on ill will towards somebody, something is happening. Something is happening to you, something is affecting them. If you're dwelling constantly on the negative towards yourself, something's happening to you. You know, sometimes people have come to me and, you know, I can't work out why I'm so miserable. And I've asked them what they've been dwelling on. I said, what would you expect? You know, you dwell on those things, you're going to be really miserable. You know, it's called karma, it's called actions have consequences. You know, it's the basic Buddhist teaching. So really work on that meta practice. You know, work on checking thoughts which undermine you. Really look for thoughts that are actually going to seed positive qualities. Thoughts influence us. Thoughts have an effect on our mind. You know, those phrases in the meta Bhavna, may I be happy. May I have deep, welling happiness. May he have deep welling happiness. May he be liberated. May I be liberated. These are powerful thoughts. They're powerful thoughts if you give them attention, if you give them the quality of presence that they need. Well, they're like powerful prayers, aspirations that can shift your consciousness. It takes time. Of course it takes time. But something happens. So making sure that those those mental acts of loving-kindness, whether you're with people or not. The other things that the Buddha says, I better finish soon because this is, this is going on as, 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 I usually, as I usually do. The next thing he says that leads to unity and harmony is the sharing, is a shared life. Of course, he's called talking to his monk disciples. He says, you even share down to the contents of your begging bowl. You know, they go out on their, on their rounds for food. Maybe one bhikkhu comes back with more than the others. Well, he'll share that. He'll share that with, with, with each other. Amazing sense of common ownership among the, uh, among the bhikkhus. The, the, that renunciate life is the real ecological life as well. The complete, you know, living so simply and sharing everything. Obviously, we, you know, we're not, we're not ready for that. But, but think of sharing. How, where, where are situations where we can share what we have? Not just giving, 
to one another, but sharing. Not regarding what we have as just ours. You know, so in any kind of community that you're involved with, any kind of group you're involved with, how can we share what we have, you know, with one another? Our, you know, share our, um, might be sharing our expertise, our talents. You see this around a, a Buddhist centre. I'm, I'm the president of the Sheffield Buddhist Centre and they have these uh, work, um, working days sometimes around the centre. And God, blimey, the talent and ability in the Sangha is, is incredible. You know, all these people, and they just say, you can have this. You know, you can have this skill. You can have this ability. Uh, you can even have this money um, to help run the centre. Uh, it's really fantastic. And this feeling that the centre is everybody's. It doesn't belong to just the order members. You know, it's, it's, it's everybody's. Everybody can participate. And when you share things with, with, with one another, it does something. It, you get closer uh, up in Sheffield, you know, and uh, you know, I don't want I don't want this to go to Bodhinaga's head, you know, in the Sheffield cooler over here. But one of the things they have before their sangha night um, is what they call the, the baked potato club, you know, where they, they they make up lots of baked potatoes. People bring food. They come from work or college or home. Everybody eats together before the class, and it really does something. It really brings people together. This sense of sharing in that very, very ordinary kind of way. We need more of this, I think, in life. This sharing of things with one another. Um, the next thing that the Buddha mentions is the dwelling in virtue, having a common ethical code. Um, you know, that's going to really bring you together. If you've got a common ethical code, you're all observing the same precepts, the same five precepts, or in the order, the same... Ten precepts. You've got a common ethical standard. You know that's obviously going to bring you together. You know if somebody's saying, "Well, I think it's all right if somebody disagrees with me, I'm going to take them out." You know, I'm going to give them a clip round the ear. Well, hang on. No, we don't do that within the Buddhist spiritual community. There's what's called the first precept: abstaining from harming living beings and deeds of loving kindness. You've got much more of a chance of coming together if you've got that common. Uh, ethic, that common ethical code. And the final thing, which the Buddha says is actually the most important thing, is a shared right view. A shared right view or a shared perfect vision. He says that underpins or is the pinnacle. It's what really draws you together. In other words, what what is going to support all these other activities is the fact that you are going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. You are doing everything you can to transcend yourself, to develop yourself, to gain enlightenment, to gain nirvana. That gathers up all those other things. And you're doing everything you can to deepen your understanding of that right view. It's, we've just done a, a very important going for refuge retreat here for many of us for ordination called the Transcendental Principle. Uh, it's the first chapter of Sangharaksita's Survey of Buddhism where we're all trying to see deeply into the Buddha's doctrine, particularly Pratichya Samatpada, conditioned co-production, into the essence of enlightenment, into nirvana itself, and trying to sort of expose the, the wrong views, the partial views, the incomplete views, 
the, the downright wrong views which uh, alienate us from that and to that extent alienate us from other people. And you notice when people have a wrong view, even a wrong view of Buddhism, they dogmatise. They kind of fall out with one another, even though it might even be a, a sort of a, a good Buddhist idea. They polarise because they've taken it in the wrong way. You've got to hold the view lightly, um, but seriously. And you've got to see the underlying deep vision of life, that what life is for is transcendence. What life is for is to live the Dharma, not just for yourself, but for the benefit of all beings. So it's not just a view in an intellectual sense, it's more like a sort of myth that you're all ascending to, or assenting to, that you're feeling. In in, in the order, Sandarachita had this vision many years ago that the symbol for the order, the Tri Ratna Buddhist order, is uh, this bizarre figure called Mahakarunika, the greatly compassionate one, Avalokiteshvara, in a particular form, the form of eleven heads and a thousand arms, each the hand of each uh, arm having an eye, the eye of wisdom, and every single hand holding a different implement. He saw this as, as what the Sangha really is, this image of complete harmony and unity, that the central hands hold this jewel of bodhicitta, the enlightened mind of wisdom and compassion, the essence of voidness and compassion. That's the central jewel. But all the other hands are unique and individual, and yet they're all connected. That's the kind of harmony that he saw, he sees, for us within our order, that we're all uniquely, gloriously, weirdly, growing in our own unique way, and we're all deeply harmonised and united, reaching out to benefit all beings. That's the way in which we build the Buddha land. That's the way we go beyond isolation. Stop there. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.